With New Horizons, you know, it flew past Pluto and Pluto went from being this, I don't know, this sort of speck of light, if you like, to being a world. And it did have a heart and it does have the potential for life. And I, I think it's a little bit of an underdog. You know, it's hard to see. It's, it's been demoted. You know, there's a lot of things that I, I think, especially being a Brit, you know, it sort of brings out that like love of an underdog is one of our innate things. And I think it does have some of that going for it. You know, it's um, it, it's a really interesting place, and I think it's very enigmatic. We we still don't know so many things about it. That mystery as well is very enticing. The planets orbiting our solar system existed long before we developed the eyeballs needed to see them. But see them we do. And as our neurology and then our technology got better over millennia, we've been able to learn more and more about our planetary neighbours. On this episode of Storyteller, I spoke with Dr. Carly Howitt, a planetary physicist, about one of our more distant friends in the solar system, Pluto. Note, I'm carefully avoiding the use of the word planet. Welcome to Storyteller. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. Now, space and scientists may not be the first thing that springs to mind when you think of storytelling, but I believe scientists are some of the most powerful storytellers of all. In a world that feels like it's going off-kilter with fake news and social media echo chambers, we need more than ever to listen to those with data, research, and facts to back up their claims. We need scientists. This is also a very special episode as I say goodbye to our storyteller producer Kathy Swan who is starting at a new job. Kathy's passion for space has definitely rubbed off on me and Dr. Howard was a guest that Kathy successfully convinced me to bring on the show. Kathy, thank you so much for helping with the launch of Storyteller. You'll be missed. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Carly Howard. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us in Storyteller today. Um, I was hoping you could just start off with telling us a bit about um, who you are and the work that you're doing. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, it's great to be here. My name's uh, Dr. Carly Howitt. I work at the Southwest Research Institute, which is in Boulder, Colorado, in the middle of the USA. And um, I'm the assistant director for the Department of Space Science. So uh, we're a pretty small group, sort of 80 to 100 people um, in, in the middle of uh, Boulder, which is beautiful, it's sort of the foothills of the Rockies. And we do uh, a lot of different areas of space science. So uh, the one of, two of the big projects we have are the New Horizons mission, which which um, flew by Pluto in 2015, and also Lucy, which is going to be looking at asteroids uh, in, in the near future. And so uh, lots of my work is around mission support, so um, making sure that the missions are working as they're supposed to and getting new observations and looking at that data, but also doing pure research and, and looking at the data, especially we get from satellites and understanding what that's telling us about our solar system. Amazing. And um, since this is going to be a a uh, Pluto-centered conversation, could you tell us a bit about, um, before we dig into obviously your incredible work at New Horizons, just to set us up, could you tell us a little bit about the story of Pluto? So Pluto is really interesting, I think. So it's uh, one of the, it was the last planet in our solar system to be discovered. So 1930. So there are still people um, alive, Uh, old people, admittedly, there were still people alive um, that 
um, were alive when Pluto was discovered. And it's a very small object. So it's actually about the same width as the United States. So, um, you know, pretty small by solar system standards. Um, But it's also a long, long way from the sun, right? So that made it really difficult to discover. So we... The distance between the Earth and the Sun is referred to as one astronomical unit or one AU. And and so, you know, the Earth, by definition, is one AU away from the Sun, and Pluto is 40 AU from the Sun. So it's about 40 times um, the distance that the Earth is from the Sun. So a very long way from us, um, and, that, and very small. So that makes it very, very difficult to discover. And it was discovered by a guy called Clyde Tombaugh, who in himself actually was super interesting, um, he was an astronomer, um, and he uh, didn't really have a background in uh, astronomy, but he uh, was taking these observations um, of the deep sky, and he was basically doing this blink technique. So you, you take, you sort of a spot the difference technique, right? Like, so you take one plate, and then you take another plate, and you basically see if anything's moved. And the stars are so far away that they don't change their position much with time. But if you have a planet, they will they will be moving relative to those stars. And and by looking at these plates and sort of looking and, and, and spotting the difference, he discovered Pluto. And so the telescope that he used is actually still at uh, Lowell Observatory, which is um, in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, and uh, you can visit it. It's a very recent um, discovery. And so there's lots of uh, information about that uh, available. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, so he discovers it in 1930, which, um, as you said, is quite quite recent, I guess, in the in the history of the of us understanding the universe. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so, was that is, is that discovery and that that technique of how he found it sort of when does that enter into the is Pluto a planet or not debate? Right. So, uh, so there's a an institution called the uh, Internet. International Astronomical Union, so or shortened IAU, and uh, they basically are the body, the sort of science democracy that um, sets up a lot of the decisions that are made about sort of astronomy. And um, in two thousand um, and six, Pluto was reclassed as a dwarf planet, and so this actually was a, a really interesting change and. That there's a lots of passionate uh, feelings on both sides that it should be changed or it shouldn't be changed, and and people feel very strongly about that. Uh, it's not something that I want to take a position on in this <laughs> podcast. To be honest, yeah. I, um, I I think um, that it remains a really interesting world, and we really did discover that with New Horizons, just how fascinating it is. Mm. Um, but it, I think it's really interesting the emotional response that people have with it because. I think people don't really realize how connected you are in sort of the big scheme of things, right? Like where your place is in the universe, where your place is in the solar system until something that you're told as a child is changed, right? You, we, mm-hmm. I learned, I grew up in the UK, I grew up in Essex, and I learned there was nine planets and that's how it was. And then, you know, you, you, you spend your, I, I've spent my career studying the solar system and all of a sudden when something fundamentally changed, like what now? There are eight, what now? Yeah, <laughs> it's very interesting. And I have, I have young kids and, you know, some of the books talk about nine planets. I guess they're, they're probably the older ones. Some of the some of the newer books talk about eight planets. And I'm always torn, like, which one am I teaching? Horizons, you know, Plutophile, I feel like I should be teaching them that Pluto has a, a rightful place in the universe and, yeah. and should be talked about. I was about to say, you've got much more interesting things to tell them about Pluto. Than <laughs> 
Pluto's planetary status is, from my perspective at least, one of the least interesting things about it. And the reason that we know so much more about Pluto is because of the information gathered and analyzed by the NASA New Horizons mission, which flew past the dwarf planet in 2015. Not only did it send back beautiful images of Pluto, the story of its one-time drive-by has enough suspense and last-minute drama to overshadow any imagined Hollywood script. Could you tell us then um, how the New Horizons project came about? And I mean, I think even just the timescale is is fascinating, really, that like, were you were you on it from the beginning or did you join at a certain time? Like, can you tell us a bit about how the project came together? Yeah, so uh, exploring the outer regions of the solar system takes a very long time. The From launch to arrival, it was nine years. So just sort of getting to Pluto took nine years. And I wasn't at it on it from the beginning. So um, it, it launched in 20, 2005. I think it was selected only sort of two or three years before that. So I was actually um, doing, I was doing my PhD at that time in the UK uh, and not on the team. I joined just after it uh, flew by Jupiter. So I moved to the US uh, a few years after that and, um, and joined the team to do some calibration work. Actually, I already had um, experience in doing calibration. And so I was brought on to do that, which if anyone knows anything about calibration, it's one of those things that's really important that it's done well, but it's not exactly the most glamorous thing, right? You're making sure that the instrument is working well. You're looking at the data, you're really digging into the details of the observations, but it's not, you know, something that the general public is going to be able to get really excited about. But that was something that was sort of my my way in. And it was um, it proved a really good way of being involved in the project, because um, when you understand the instrument the way you do when you do calibration, it makes it, it means that you're you can be useful to the project. And that was what mm. um, that was my way in. So from there, I, I got more and more involved and I was heavily involved. So in the um, camera. So that was my a primary uh, instrument. So I was doing the calibration on the color camera. And then I did a lot of the work through Pluto on the color camera. And then uh, when it flew by another target uh, last year, so in 2019. So um, it was, it's been a really interesting um, adventure. And I was on Cassini before that and Cassini was at Saturn and it did lots of um, observations. So it was in orbit around Saturn and it took observations, you know, pretty much continuously, but mm. this was a single flyby. If you get it wrong, that's it. You've lost that data. And so um, it felt like the odds, the stakes were just that little bit higher because of the nature of the encounter. You know, you wait nine years to have this three month encounter. And the last thing you want to happen is for data to get lost because you can't get it back. It's not like next time we'll get it. You know, there is no next time. <laughs> and do you mind telling us a little bit about the uh, the drama, the, the, the yeah, I don't want to call it the drama. That sounds really ridiculous. But I mean, you did have a bit of a, a last minute uh, panic. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, there was a software glitch. Uh, so the encounter was set um, for July 14th, 15th. And on July 5th, um, there was basically uh, the computer was asked to do one too many things at the same time. It was what it boiled down to. Um, and it, the computer did what it's supposed to do, which is go into safe mode. And this is basically means that it turns off any, any observations that are being made and the spacecraft turns towards home and goes, help. And so take into mind, this is like, We've been traveling there for nine years. This is nine, this is nine days before encounter. This is not a good situation. Um, 
And so um, the, the, the light time, so the time that it takes in order for, for the earth to receive a signal and then reply to that signal at that time was, I think it was about eight and a half to nine hours. So, you know, you wow. can't just, you can't just say what's up and then just like, wait, right. Cause that's not going to work. Yeah. So yeah. we have a computer on the ground. That's the same as the one that's flying and they could basically run the same sequence and see what probably was the glitches rather than having to wait nine hours, you know, just sort of yeah, talk, to, talk to a local version and resolve yeah. it. Um, it was pretty quickly figured out what um how the system was overloaded and then the next thing was to test the um the uh kind of resolve right the 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 fix on the ground and then that was uploaded so it was offline for two two and a half three days i think which is we did mean we lost some key science but it didn't mean we lost the encounter which was so it sort of made it a little bit more exciting you know in any good movie Mm. there's that sort of like (laughs) the thing that goes wrong before the thing that goes right and 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 that was ours but um now it's easy to look back and be like ha ha wasn't it you know it it all got fixed wasn't that great and at the the time it was um it was pretty stressful so yeah yeah. Yeah. and I was quite amazed to learn that then um I would uh, you can tell me if this is right or not that the camera that the sorry that it then goes silent while it takes the photos because obviously can't be like communicating with you and doing that at the same time is that correct that's absolutely right so um in order for this the uh, spacecraft to communicate with the earth the antenna has to be pointing towards the earth right Mm -hmm. um but that's not the orientation that we wanted to fix throughout the encounter. We wanted to get the best science, right? Like I say, we've been waiting there to get there a long time. We want to get the Mm. best science that we can um, during that encounter. And so it it wasn't necessarily that it was silent. Um, It was definitely, you know, whirling away, but um, it wasn't communicating with us. Right. So um, there was a period after the encounter where it turns back to earth and it basically just fires off a quick signal. And that signal just tells us like, how much data it was taken, whether um, there was any issues. Um, and, and that was sort of our, our sort of, they call it housekeeping data, like the, the, just the very bare bones of is the spacecraft alive? How much data was taken? Was there any issues? And so that was our sort of phone home signal at the end of the day. And so a lot of people, including myself, waited up for that. So I, we were working pretty much 24 seven um that that week and um that was a big relief to know that the spacecraft had survived the encounter that we got the data back we were going to get the data back sorry and um that all the observations that we'd spent so long planning have been taken um and there's a phrase which um it sounds really boring but it's just nominal which means everything worked according to plan which sounds really dull right like if something's nominal you're not going to get excited about it how was your date darling oh it was nominal you know like whatever (laughs) but in, in science speak that just that was just the best word because it meant that everything worked according to plan so no rules fired means that the spacecraft worked without any encountering any issues and nominal so if you ever listen to one of these spacecraft you know if you hear those two things you're going to see a lot of happy scientists because that (laughs) that means that everything went well (laughs) amazing and i mean um i know you know it takes a while to sort of stitch the images together and i know the version that we saw is probably like you know the really nice glossed up version but um how did how did you feel when you saw that first um sort of fully put together photo well, it was actually kind of fun because um, there was five of us that got to help make that image and most of the team didn't. So when I say we were sleep deprived, I was incredibly sleep deprived because I'd been up the, completely the night before. I think I had two hours sleep 
um, mm. with another four people putting and, and you got to be careful when you say putting the image together because it was actually a single we, the the color image and the the high resolution images are two images so we basically colorized use the color lower resolution color image to colorize the high resolution image so we combined images but we didn't there was nothing artificial about it if you like um and, uh, yeah, yeah. And and I, also so, thought I probably yeah. shouldn't call it a photo that's probably not the quite right word either <laughs> um but it, um yeah so sorry so it's not um it's not stitched together from like multiple photographs it's one Image. Right. And yeah, exactly. So there's, there's multiple images, right? And and some of them have been stitched together to make a mosaic. But the the image, if you know, if you, if you Google Pluto in color, um, then that's a single image. We, we mm-hmm. sent we sent cameras that were good at taking these sorts of observations. And although this was an encounter, you've got to remember, we're still quite a long way away. I think it was 5000 kilometers. Um, and so that sounds like, you know, we're obviously a lot closer than the Earth is, but we're not flying, you know, like aeroplane level above, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> above the surface. And so um, we do get some images that fill the field of view. So you don't see the whole disk. Um, but the the image that really shows, you know, the full disk of Pluto is a single image. But we just we basically combine two images to to get the highest resolution color image. Mm. And from the from the camera point of view like how do you deal with the the lack of light that far down yeah so pluto is a long way from the sun we've already said that um and so of course um it's it's a lot darker but it's also a lot lighter than you think if you google um pluto time it shows mm. there's, there's a really interesting web page that was put together by the new horizons project and it and you can put in where you are in the world and it'll tell you what time to go out and you'll experience the same level of light that Pluto does at, I think, at, like, um, basically midday. So, and oh, it's, wow. sort of, okay. it's sort of twilighty. So it's yeah. dark, but it's not pitch black, right? So yeah. that was kind of interesting to me. And that, I think that, that website's still up. So if you're interested, definitely check it out. It was it was quite astounding to me. Um, but basically, we, we do what you would do to take a nighttime image. We take long exposure images. And so, uh, first of all, you want to make a camera that's good at looking at deep, uh, dim, dim things, right? You want to have mm. the, the, the bigger the optics, you know, literally the more light you can get into the camera, the better images it's going to take. Um, and then uh, you just, you, you make sure that your spacecraft isn't wobbling around so you can take long exposure images without smearing. And so um, it, the, the whole suite of New Horizons was put together to look at these very dim and distant objects. Um, and so they worked well and we did get great images but uh it it is hard to look at these um targets because they especially things like asteroids and comets um Mm. they're very very dark like cold dark some of them and so uh there's definitely this whole instrumentation field around trying to make sure that when you when you send a space robot that far you're going to get some good data from it yeah yeah and um i know it would be way too much to go into like all the excellent like incredible things that you found um from from that trip but um is there a do you have like a favorite bit or so maybe we could talk about the the sort of um potential for there to be water underneath the surface or it's maybe you know what i mean like, there's so much to go through i don't want to we, we can't go through all of it but do you have a favorite um discovery per se I, yeah so i think there are there are two things that really jump out at me and the first is on pluto itself so if you see an image of pluto uh, in the middle of the image, uh, middle of the disk, there's this region that's kind of a heart-shaped region. Um, mm. 
and on the the left like ventricle i guess of the heart the left hand side um there's a region that really is very devoid of craters so it's very flat right no it doesn't look like the moon for example and and that was really striking because what it means is that there's active geology on the surface so everything in the solar system gets hit by bits of you know random rocks right and they create Mm. craters and that that just happens we know that happens and so when you see a region on, on any surface that doesn't have craters on it it means that something has been changing so on the earth of course that could be water it could be wind you know we have lots of things that are able to eradicate um craters but on something like pluto that's really unexpected because we're a long way from the sun where there's not a big atmosphere you know there's not going to be flowing water and things like that so it meant there was active geology which is basically just something's changing on the surface which was just astounding because where does it get the energy to do that you know the sun's not going to be able to provide that energy there's not a big gas giant you know like we we know there are some active moons in the solar system but those tend to be near a jupiter or saturn you know something that enables that you can kind of give them energy but the pluto is the biggest thing around and it's really small so I think yeah. that was just really um, mind blowing to me. I didn't expect to see that, and and you were right. You know, one of the ideas to explain this is that um, there could be a liquid water ocean under Pluto's surface. So of course, Pluto, you know, it's it's too cold, it's too distant in the solar system to have uh, water on the surface. But maybe there's an ice layer. Uh, and then liquid water underneath. And, and if that's true, then that water could be habitable. And that just is really mind-blowing, right? Like we always talk about this Goldilocks zone, the region where you can have liquid water. And traditionally that's been sort of, you know, the Earth's distance from the sun. But if it's not, if it's Pluto's distance from the sun, then then does that mean that, you know, all of these other solar systems that we're discovering, um, maybe there's just the chances for life, you know, it, it just yeah. multiplies. And so it's a, it's a really, I think that was a fundamentally really important discovery, probably the most important discovery that New Horizons made. One of the things that really captured my imagination during the research for this interview was the sense of time. Trying to imagine a project building over 15 years for one time shot at gathering information. Missions that outlast political cycles, data found can fundamentally alter how we understand our place in the universe. And as you can hear in my question, it's all a bit overwhelming for my news cycle broken brain. There's, there's something so interesting about like the scale of time on, on what you're working on, because if, if just by very poor comparison, like I was in daily news. So you're literally just like waking up every morning and then, you know, Go, your go, whole go. day is inside <laughs> of a day and then you you know you see these projects and and people are working on them for these long periods of time and and just these numbers I guess that I guess maybe if you're not in the scientific world to try and get your head around you know billions in billions of miles and you know nine years and that sort of stuff so I just thought maybe from your perspective how how do you think about time in that way like do you enjoy just digging into something knowing that you might not maybe get the like payoff I guess in some way way down the line or is that sort of the joy of it 
Um, well, it, it's kind of funny. So I, I consider myself to be in this sort of mid-career position, right? So previously, I'd been involved, I'd, I'd got the benefit from other people's work, right? So I was on Cassini, but Cassini was already there. And so I hadn't been waiting for, you know, the whatever it was, six years for it to get there. And then all the work that went in before that, I was just reaping the benefits of Cassini being there. But now I'm in the position where I'm proposing missions, where, you know, I, we're in the process of proposing one, which is going to go um, fly by a moon of Neptune called Triton. And that wouldn't fly by till 2038. Well, wow. you know, I'm, I'm in my early 40s. And, you know, like you do the maths and you think, okay, this is going to be if this if this is lucky enough to be selected, this would be, you know, leading up to that is probably up until retirement, right? So I'm sort of yeah. doing the prep work to for maybe someone else to benefit, or maybe if I'm lucky enough to still be around to be working on it through retirement. And it is this sort of very interesting, like you, you feel like there's a baton and, and you, you know, early in your career, you get given the baton and you get to reap the benefits of other people's work. And then, you know, you sort of get to be involved in these very early onset missions, but it means that maybe you don't, you know, maybe you hand the baton off to someone else um, before yeah. you retire. Um, and so that's part of the problem with working in the deep solar system. It takes a long time to get there. If you're a Mars researcher, you can get there in six months. So, you know, whatever, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, I, but there's so much intrigue in the deep solar system that I, I think the, the weight is worth it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I wanted just to say I had I had watched the um, the Horizon documentary that they that uh, BBC did on Pluto, which I will put in the show notes for people to watch. It is fantastic, and I didn't I didn't really want to do a like woman in STEM thing, but I I did really I was really um, moved by the amount of uh, women scientists that there were, and I I don't I don't want to have that be like the fo I, I sort of get a bit annoyed sometimes when people over focus on on stuff and it may take away from the work that people are doing but I did I haven't had it in a while when I looked at something and I was like that visibility is just so important like because I know as for, for me as sort of like maybe a little nervous outsider kind of thing and I was watching it and I just thought you know as a kid I found all of this stuff fascinating but I, I don't know I just never saw anyone who looked like me and I didn't ever really think of it as an option of something to go into it and I just wanted to have it as a side note to say that it was so it was so powerful and also that it wasn't just one you know what I mean if there's one woman and that's a very specific thing but when it, there's a few then it stops being a a thing if that makes sense then it's just normalized a bit um so I but I just wanted to use that to segue into if you could tell us a bit about like how you got into this work and your story and your journey into into the work that you do sure um so I grew up in and just outside of Chelmsford in Essex in, in the UK um and I went to a comprehensive school um there and you know I I actually went to the University of Essex to do an undergraduate degree and I wasn't sure like a lot of people <laughs> what, mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. So I did physics and management studies, physics because I was I was always interested in science and how the world works uh, and management studies because I was just trying to keep my options open, right? Like I, I like mm -hmm. the idea of doing more project management kind of work and, and maybe going into finance. I wasn't kind of sure. So I did that. And at the end of that, um, that went well. That was kind of fun. Um, and then I decided to to specialize a little bit more and stay on for a master's. Uh, so I'd, I'd 
didn't come from money. And weirdly, I had an accident. Someone drove into my car and wrote off my car and I ended up with this check, right? And I spent it on on doing a master's in space science because I could afford to. Like I literally, someone had (laughs) written me a check that paid for my tuition. And and so I went and and did this master's at University College London, which was on space science. And part of that was doing some work on the ill-fated Beagle 2 mission. So for those people that don't know, the UK had a uh, a lander that um, was a UK mission that was um, that went to Mars and unfortunately um, didn't successfully land. But it was a very low budget mission, which may be why it didn't successfully <laughs> land. But but it meant that there was lots of opportunities within the UK to work on science hardware, space hardware. Um, mm. Usually, that's something that you know you don't get to do at a master's level, and I got to help build the, the cameras and, and be involved in how the observations were going to be taken. And, and it was just a real hook for me, you know, just being able to yeah. be very hands-on and, and be able to be involved at that level. And so I decided to stay on and I um, got a, a fellowship to do a um, PhD moving over to the University of Oxford. Um, and I, I, it was a joint PhD with a, a NASA um, facility called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And it was just phenomenal being able to, you know, be involved in Oxford and all the Oxford opportunities, but also get involved in the American side because, you know, the ESA and NASA are two very different entities. So the European Space Agency and the NASA, the the American Space Agency are very different. And so it was kind of just amazing, you know, the ages of 21 to 24 to be able to experience both and make contacts in both and, you know, just... I don't know, work in all these different but fundamentally amazing regions. And so that was just sort of the hook. And I I always wanted a job that was interesting. I didn't really mind what the job was. But when I was, um, before I went to university, I had a job in retail. I worked as a check on the checkout B&Q, which is a a hardware store um, in the UK. And it was it was good. There was really nice people there. And I really enjoyed it. But I I found it, I, the days just dragged and I knew I wanted yeah. a job where the days went fast. You know, I just, I wanted a job that would kind of just really keep me engaged. Um, yeah. And so I think that was always my driver just to have, just to solve questions and, and have an interesting job. And that was all I wanted. And I, just the questions of the outer solar system, like we don't know so much. It, it's just really interesting. And it's always just kept me re-engaged. It's been great. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, what do you think? Is there anything that you feel? What do people misunderstand about your job? Like, what's the most annoying thing you get asked at dinner parties? <laughs> if I do say it that way, uh, usually aliens. Where are the aliens? Oh, yeah? yeah, of course, okay. aliens. Um, Lots of aliens. And I think okay. people think it's sort of this super glamorous job. I, I gave a presentation last week where the only way I could have a quiet space was in in our guest room because we have two young kids, and the only way I could get my laptop at the right height was to perch it on top of a laundry basket so you know like, <laughs> this is like this amazing job and it's super glamorous but you know there are some days where you're basically hiding in a closet talking you know on the laptop perched on a laundry basket so yeah I, I think it's like any job there's a lot of email there's a lot of um days where you know you don't know the answer and I think that's hard because when you taught science at school there's an answer right you do this experiment and you're expected to get this answer or you do this maths derivation and you're expected to get an answer but real science doesn't have an answer always or it it has an answer that's elusive um Mm. and so that's that can be difficult it can be a little bit disheartening you know you 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 work a lot and sometimes it comes to something and sometimes it doesn't and it's all it's all just part of the process 
you see when you look up at the sky at night? The stars and planets have fascinated us since we first looked up and wondered what those shining lights were. I wanted to hear from someone like Carly, who has spent her work life and applied her scientific mind to space and these planetary objects, if she still finds the night sky as romantic as I do. For With Pluto, for example, I was just going to say, why, why do you think we as people, and I guess maybe people who aren't in science, but still get like very... Um, uh, I would say we almost have like a cultural history with the planets, which I hadn't really thought about until I started researching for this, which is like, I was just really, I loved all the the names and, you know, a lot of the language that I was reading. I know um, journalists also often very miserably mess up um, explaining scientific things for storytelling. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really interesting that, you know, people were like, oh, Pluto was alone and it is cold and alone at the edge of the system. And then, you know, the, the new horizons came past and, you know, that, and, um, you know, that it's not actually dead, it's alive. And, you know, the shape, I love the, you know, the, the shape of the heart. And I just thought, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on why, um, as these sort of like squishy humans on this, you know, one tiny planet, why we're so sort of deeply um, interested and connected with the, with space. It's, it's a really interesting question, and I don't really know I know the answer, but I know that I feel it too. Um, mm. And th- there, are, there are times where, you know, you've been working on a project, and I've talked a little bit about Cassini, but I'll come back to it, because Cassini was something I worked on for the best part of 10 years, and mm. I planned observations and I analyzed its data, and yet when it flew on purpose, you know, into to Saturn to the end of its life, I cried, yeah. right? Yeah. And that completely caught me out by surprise, like... Cassini is an inanimate object, right? I understand that it was always going to be disposed of in that way. It was the safest thing. We really don't want it hitting, you know, Enceladus, which is a moon that might have life, right? We want this was the responsible way of doing it. And yet I felt very attached to this space robot. I'd worked, you know, using its data, I literally told it how to move and things like that. With, with New Horizons, you know, it flew past Pluto, and Pluto went from being this. I don't know, this sort of speck of light, if you like, to being a world. And it did have a heart and it does have the potential for life. And I, I think it's a little bit of an underdog. You know, it's hard to see. Yeah. It's, it's been demoted. You know, there's a lot of things that I, I think, especially being a Brit, you know, it sort of brings out that like love of an underdog is one of yes. my things. <laughs> and I think it does have some of that going for it. You know, it's, um, it, it's a really interesting place. And I think it's very... Enigmatic. We we still don't know so many things about it. That mystery as well is very enticing. You know, we we only flew past one hemisphere. We didn't really get a good look at the other hemisphere. So, you know, is that is that where the dragons are living? I don't know. Probably yeah. <laughs> probably not. It's never aliens. But you know, it, it, there's just a lot of questions, and I, I think that makes it really intriguing for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think. Um, well, could you tell us a bit more about Cassini and then any projects that you're working on now? Yeah, so Cassini was a really interesting mission. So it was a joint mission between the European Space Agency, ESA, and the NASA, NASA the American Space Agency. And it came in two forms. So one was a probe that dropped onto a Triton. Sorry, Triton is the Neptune. I'll talk about Triton in a minute. Triton. <laughs> um, and so... Um, um, that's a, a world that has a, a, a really thick haze. So when the Voyager probes flew by, we couldn't see what the surface was 
because um, it was too covered in, um, in haze. And so one of the things we wanted to do was to understand what the surface uh, looked like. And uh, Cassini was able to do that with um, this probe Huygens. So that was what the uh, Europeans put together. But then there was also a big European um, uh, involvement in the mission. And that's actually how I became involved. So Oxford made part of the radiator, so the cooling system for the infrared in- instrument um, on Cassini. There was lots of other involvement too. Um, Germany helped make some of the cameras. Um, and and that was sort of my my way to moving to America, to be honest, because I, I was involved in analyzing the data um, that it was taking of Saturn. And then I stayed on the instrument. So I stayed working on that same instrument, but then I moved to the States to understand what the instrument was telling us about the, the small satellites. And it was an absolutely phenomenal mission. So it's really large spacecraft about the same size as a um, a minibus or a school bus in the US. Um, it was powered by nuclear power because it was going deep into the solar system. There wasn't enough solar radiation to enable us to use solar panels. And it just did this phenomenal work. We understood so much more about the um, system. For example, we found out that Enceladus has active geysers or geysers coming out of the um, South Pole um, that are made of organics. It's it's really uh, a very interesting, possibly habitable environment. And and, and then, of course, um, Triton and understanding the surface of of that moon and that it rains, uh, things like methane. And, you know, that's just so weird to think about, you know, basically the same stuff that comes out, you know, the hydrocarbons that make up petrol are just raining out of the sky. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. just really, really mind blowing. Um, So that, that was really a lot of fun. And um, it was just such a privileged position because I got to take observations and analyze the data. And usually in science, you're in one of those two bins, you're planning or you're, you know, analyzing, but to be able to, you know, basically drive the spacecraft was pretty cool. But the project that I'm super excited, well, there's two, but I, I, um, one is to return to Pluto. And that is okay. um, a concept study that we've been putting together. And we've just delivered that to NASA. And so um, that's a very long way off. Um, there's many roadblocks to that being selected. Um, and if it, it, even if it were, it probably wouldn't get there until sort of 2050, 2060. So um, a, a long, long way off. But the, the near-term one that I'm, I'm excited about is one called Trident. Um, and this has been selected by NASA for phase A study. And what that means is they've given us a bit of money so basically said, hey, this mission looks really cool. Um, so 20, I think like 20 odd missions went in and they down selected those to five of which Trident was one. And they gave each of those missions a little bit of money and said, it looks really cool. Like, but these are the problems with it. So you've got this money, go away for a year and fix them. And then mm. give us a report and we'll down select them further. So if we're lucky to be down selected from five to two, uh, this mission would fly um, launching in 2025, arriving at Neptune in 2038. But Triton is a really interesting target because what we think is it originated in the Kuiper Belt. So it started its life near, probably near Pluto somewhere, that sort of distance. But something happened and it got moved into the inner solar system and then it got captured by Neptune. So it has this really interesting past. And when mm. Voyager flew by, it had plumes coming off from the surface and Voyager saw those plumes. But, um, but of course, technology has changed a lot 
in you know the last i think the the encounter that voyager had you know was using what 1960s 1970s tech yeah and so you know sending new instruments we just learn so much more and it's such an interesting world that i think it would be really compelling yeah it's incredible it's even the idea you know of like a being cap when you said captured by neptune i was just like that's so wild it's so crazy yeah. to even think about those things um okay great um i was gonna ask um for for scientists who work in space um is there a favorite movie that people actually genuinely like or do you normally stay away from the space movies because they're just too annoying and unrealistic <laughs> Um, that's a really great question. And I've never been asked that before. Um, actually, um, I, I think some of the, so I guess I don't have a movie that's like the best because the science is so real, but I really Mm -hmm. like some of the imagery that was in the expanse. They, the, the TV show. So they used a lot of, um, really uh like up-to-date scientific, you know, images that were taken of different targets. They don't always, so I, I want to be careful. I'd say they don't always use them in the right way. Sometimes they they use, you know, they say it's, it's a certain target. And we, as a scientist, you know, it's not, it's something else. But yeah. I think that they do a good job of just exploring, you know, um, the imagery that we have and the type of um, exploration you could do. I think that was really fun from that perspective. Okay, great. I'll definitely check it out. <laughs> Oh, it does sound really cheesy as I say this, but like it is really um, a huge thing that um, scientists take the time to explain these things to like lay people who maybe we like don't, don't ask the most exciting questions or we you know we we might not understand the math and stuff. But I think so much, especially over the years, especially on daily news, you know, um, every time NASA popped up with something, we'd all sort of rock up and we'd, you know <laughs> wait for the announcement and stuff. And I always just have admired so much like the effort that people put into making sure that we under- we we could a wrap our heads around like just sort of the the massiveness of sometimes of the concepts of what people are trying to explain to us but I've always just whenever there was space stuff I always got excited I always feel like there was there's so much effort to really make it um fun and understandable and to really explain like the wider ramifications which I know sometimes in like science comms isn't the easiest thing so that's just my little like thank you to the storytellers of the space science world (laughs) I think it helps we have pretty pictures I think yes (laughs) (laughs) actually that's all it is not really (laughs) Uh, okay well thank you so much for coming on storyteller I really appreciate it thanks for having me this has been fun There's something deeply strange and cosmic to the fact that us little squishy earthly humans made of skin and bones and neurons, maybe if we're lucky we'll last a hundred years if we're really lucky on this one rock orbiting this one sun, you know, our star, the sun. It's crazy that we have evolved to be able to share knowledge, build tools and analyze data that allows us to understand these objects on the edge of our of our galaxy and you know to be able to build something that then can take a photograph that that can then come back through time and space to help us understand the physical composition of other planets it's crazy it's really really crazy and absolutely wonderful a huge thank you to dr carly howard for just sharing this incredible knowledge with us 
Um, as always, please do share the podcast with anyone you think has a curious mind. I'm willing to bet that everyone listening to this has at least one friend, relative, cousin, niece or nephew, son or daughter who's obsessed with space. So please do share this deep dive into Pluto with them. You can find Storyteller on Instagram at Storyteller underscore pod and on Twitter at StorytellerPod1. You can email me at StorytellerPod at gmail.com. I'd still love to hear your thoughts um, on any other guests that you want coming up, uh, what you thought about this episode. Um, I've had some great suggestions and you will be hearing some of those people on the upcoming shows. So until next time.